From 1984 through 1991, thousands of fires were intentionally set from Southern California to the Central Coast to the Central Valley and countless places in between. Homes, businesses, dry brush, nothing was off limits. The arsonist left virtually nothing behind in the way of evidence that could ever be traced back to him for years. The damage and destruction soared into the millions and four innocent lives were lost. The arsonist was brazen. He set fires with impunity and he managed to get away with it for a long time until he finally slipped up and left behind a clue that would eventually lead investigators right to him. It was then that it became clear why this pyromaniac was able to set fire after fire after fire while managing to elude capture. He was one of them, investigating the very fires that he was setting. He was busting arsonists while moonlighting as one. Driven by a desire for attention, to be a hero, to be the very best at arson investigation, to garner recognition for his dedication to his job, while he steadily rose through the ranks. But there was also an insatiable desire to feed his own sadomasochistic sexual urges, which for him was to watch things burn. It took years for investigators to catch on to him. And even when he did come up as a possible suspect, nobody who knew him or worked with him were even willing to entertain the possibility that he was the arsonist that they sought. And this only emboldened him even more and allowed for the devastation and destruction to continue for much longer than it ever should have. Even years later, to this day, there are still many people who refuse to believe that he was responsible. Join me as I tell the story of the most prolific serial arsonist the state of California possibly the entire country has ever seen. You are listening to California Dreaming, and this is the tale of the Firestarter. Hello and welcome back to the show. I really want to thank you all for all of the great feedback from episode 193, which was about Amy's Bakery. I'm really glad that you found it so amusing. It was a mixed bag here. Some of you had seen the episode, some of you hadn't, but almost all of you went looking for it afterwards, or you stopped the podcast in the middle and went for it before you came back to it, which is fun. Maybe we should have had a watch party or something, possibly next time, but a story like that, I think it only comes around once in a lifetime. Okay, so let's take care of some business. This is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman, three-dog production, and there are a number of ways that you can help keep it that way. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your podcasts on. That helps give the show more visibility and it pushes us up the charts where new listeners can find us. You can also recommend us in true crime podcast fan groups on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I do have a TikTok, but I forget about it a lot. And what I have posted has mostly been videos of the dogs. And if you simply can't get enough of California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon, where you will be able to binge dozens of exclusive full-length episodes of the show. 
Also, I have about 99% of the thank you cards mailed out to patrons who joined or increased your pledges before the middle of June. If you joined in the last month and a half or so, yours are up next. Depending on what tier you're at, I give out stickers, I give out refrigerator magnets and buttons and things like that. So keep a lookout in your mail. Expect a thank you card from me soon. This week, I'd like to thank Elise, Georgie, Carrie W., Nicole S., Lisa Beans, Tina A., Pamela G., Rue A., Stephanie R., James H., Joan O., Dara L., and Lindsay G. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or switching to the annual option. And if a subscription isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation to the show through the email KiloforniaPod at gmail.com. All right, let's get started with this story. This is a case that has been featured on a couple of podcasts as well as an episode of Forensic Files. There are several articles online about this story, as well as a book entitled Fire Lover by Joseph Wambaugh. Any direct quotes or information from other sources will be cited accordingly. Our story today begins in the city of South Pasadena, located in the San Gabriel Valley area of Los Angeles County. The date was October 10, 1984. Ada and Billy Deal went shopping at Ole's Home Center, which is a chain of hardware stores that is no longer around. From what I could find, it was a Southern California-based retailer with about 19 stores. I had never seen or been to one because I grew up about 45 minutes southeast of South Pasadena. So Ada and Billy went to Ole's that evening. It was about 7.30. With them, they had their two-year-old grandson, Matthew Tridel. As they were headed into Ole's, Matthew noticed a Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop. He pointed at the shop, indicating that he wanted an ice cream. His grandparents promised him that they would get him one when they were done with their shopping. 17-year-old Jimmy Satina was an employee of Ole's, as was 26-year-old Carolyn Krause. Jimmy had just started his senior year in high school. He was a star baseball player. In fact, he was already getting noticed by some minor league baseball teams. Not only was he a talented ball player, he was also quite handsome, having done some modeling for a department store. He did come from a working-class family, he was one of seven kids, so he got the job at Ole's to help out. And it was kind of a bummer that he needed to be at work that particular night because Game 2 of the World Series between the San Diego Padres and the Detroit Tigers was happening that night. The store was set to close pretty soon, so he might have been able to catch the last innings. Ada was there wanting to buy some paints, and Billy was looking to pick up some pieces of lumber. So they went to two different departments inside the store. And little Matthew went with his grandma to the paint department, which is where employee Carolyn Kraus was working that evening. Carolyn was a mother of two young children. She had with her husband, who was a police officer with the LAPD. There was another employee named Jim Obdom. He was done with the shift and was about to head out for the night. It was getting close to 8 p.m., but just as Jim was about to reach the front entrance, he noticed that the store was starting to fill with smoke. 
It was coming from one of the displays in the aisle towards the back. So he headed back into the store to make sure that customers were aware that something was going on and that they needed to evacuate the building. There wasn't much of a panic right away because nobody had seen any flames. So far, it was just a plume of dark smoke. The people in the store began making their way towards the exit as Jim made his way towards Carolyn in the paint department. She told him that she would go and make sure that the place was cleared out and she quickly made her way through the aisles. Jim did the same through some other aisles and he did find some people still casually shopping, oblivious to the smoke that was rising towards the ceiling. Jim found Ada and Matthew. He told her that they were evacuating the store, but to not panic. They just needed to get to the front and exit the building. So Ada wasn't worried. She wasn't in a hurry and she was still kind of browsing a little bit. Jim went up and down a couple more aisles and he ended up making his way back to Ada and Matthew once again. This time he had a little bit more urgency in his tone and he told her, look, you should just leave your merchandise, leave your shopping cart. You really need to get the two of you out of the store. He quickly turned and started heading towards the front door, thinking that Ada and Matthew were not too far behind. But by the time he got to the front, he glanced back over his shoulder And that's when he saw the entire aisle was engulfed in flames and it was spreading so quickly. What's worse is he didn't see Ada and Matthew emerge from where he last saw them. Meanwhile, Billy Deal had lingered in the lumber department seemingly unaware of the chaos that was starting to build around him. Suddenly, the sounds of things breaking perhaps light bulbs bursting because it was suddenly becoming dark and then an alarm began sounding and it still really didn't sink in for Billy just yet. He thought that it was like some sort of closing bell or something. Then Billy started seeing customers and employees realizing that there was a fire in the store and they began running towards the exit. They yelled that there was a fire, but Billy hadn't seen it yet from where he was inside the lumber department. As he started making his way towards the front of the building, He could then see that there was smoke everywhere, and he began looking for his wife and his grandson. But the smoke was soon turning from gray to black, and it was becoming hotter and increasingly harder to see and to breathe. He yelled for his wife, but he was unable to see where she was at. Billy made his way towards the front entrance, and it was at that time that the first fire trucks were arriving at the scene. As for Jim, he had not made it to the front. Instead, he headed into the back room where he knew that there was an emergency exit. But the problem was the smoke was becoming so thick and so black he couldn't see where he was going. He tried to stay as low to the ground as possible as he continued to look for the exit. He could feel himself growing weaker because of the lack of oxygen. And just as he was ready to collapse to the ground and succumb to the smoke, He finally made it to that emergency exit door. He managed to get himself the rest of the way there. He pushed on the bar and scrambled outside as he triggered another alarm by opening it. It wasn't until Jim was outside when he began to notice that his body still felt really hot even though he was no longer inside with the flames. At the same time, he wanted to try to get to a phone to call his parents to let them know that he was okay. 
And it was about that time when Jim realized that he had suffered some severe burns to his hands and his arms, his neck and his head. When he began seeing how injured he was, he tried touching his own skin, at which point small pieces began falling off. Those who made their way out of the Oli's home center said that the fire moved through the building like waves crashing. That was a flashover. According to a blog on maricourtcressa.com, a flashover is the near simultaneous ignition of mostly the directly exposed combustible materials in an enclosed area. When certain materials are heated, they undergo thermal decomposition and release flammable gases. The flashover occurs when the majority of the exposed surfaces in a space are heated to their auto-ignition temperature and emit flammable gases. Flashover usually occurs at 932 degrees Fahrenheit or 500 degrees Celsius. An example given is the ignition of a piece of furniture in a living room like a sofa. The fire involving this initial piece of furniture can produce a layer of hot smoke which spreads across the ceiling in the room. The hot buoyant smoke layer grows in depth and is bounded by the walls of the room. The radiated heat from this layer heats the surfaces of the directly exposed combustible materials in the room, causing them to give off flammable gases. When the temperatures of the evolved gases have become high enough, these gases will ignite, causing the flashover, which is powerful enough to blow out windows and doors of the building. The flashover ignited just as a number of customers and one employee were about to make it to the exit. It literally blew them all out the door as they opened it, just in time to not be swallowed up by the sudden ignition of those gases. The fire station was only three blocks away from Ole's home center, so they were able to get there pretty fast. From the outside and approaching the building, it didn't look like there was a massive fire going on. There wasn't even a whole lot of smoke rising in the air. But once they got there, they could see that flames were coming out of almost every door. Most of the fire was still burning inside wildly. Now, this business was equipped with these automatic roll-down metal doors that come down in a fire to prevent it from spreading beyond the confines of the room that the fire is in. This door is held up by a piece of metal that, when it is heated by the fire, it melts away, allowing for the door to drop down. However, this feature is meant for when the building is closed and nobody is inside the store and is to help keep the fire from spreading. But because the store was open and there were people inside there, these roll-down doors prevented firefighters from being able to enter the building or open those doors so people could get out. Meanwhile, Billy Deal was outside trying to collect himself. He was so hot and so thirsty, but he wanted to search the perimeter of the building to see where Ada and Matthew were at. For a moment, he thought that maybe he could go back inside to look for them, but the fire was far too intense. He eventually saw Jim, the one who alerted him to the evacuation, so it gave Billy a measure of comfort knowing that he made it out, so Ada and Matthew must be somewhere around too. Finally, Billy found the fire chief and told him that he thought his wife and grandson might still be inside. 
He was fairly certain that they must be close to the exit. The fire chief assured Billy that if they are just inside the door, that they would be able to get to them. But when the firefighters finally made it inside, as they were working to smother the flames with their hoses, they discovered that the fire had already flashed over and everything inside had already been obliterated and was completely consumed in flames. Nothing inside would be saved, including anyone who wasn't able to get out. The heat inside the building was so intense, it was evaporating the water that they were trying to fight the flames with. They tried to open the side doors, but the fire doors that had rolled down prevented them from doing so. Then, one guy was set onto the roof to create a ventilation for the fire, but as soon as they did, the oxygen-starved flames shot straight up into the air. Then, it felt like the roof was going to cave in, so that firefighter hurried back down off the roof. As the fire chief looked around outside, he started to wonder where his backup fire engine was at. They should have been there at the scene by then. It was going on 10 minutes. It wasn't that far. When he began to radio for the other engine, he was informed that there was actually a second fire just a few blocks away at a Vaughn's grocery store. This had everyone scratching their heads like, how is this even happening? Two fires in close proximity inside businesses that were still open and full of customers. Nothing like this had ever happened before. There was something very, very unusual going on. And it was suspicious. And these weren't the only two fires that evening in the area. There had been another, just before the Ole's Home Center and Vaughn's fires. It was at another grocery store, Albertson's, located in Pasadena, about 7 miles or 11 kilometers away. That fire was found to have been started in the chip aisle, and it was clearly set on purpose. So they called up to have one of their most experienced arson investigators head over to the scene in order to try and determine what happened, and that would be John Leonard Orr. He was the captain of the Glendale Fire Department, and over the years, he had become one of the best arson experts in the state of California. Orr arrived at the Albertsons grocery store pretty quickly, and he always showed up like he was an encyclopedia of information when it came to arson investigation. It only took him seconds to figure out why the arsonist did what he did. For example, when he arrived at the Albertsons fire location, he pointed out how bags of potato chips are actually highly flammable with the oils that are used in the cooking of the chips, the materials that the chip bags were manufactured with, it was all highly combustible. Orr quickly arrived to the conclusion that the fire had been deliberately set, and he said that is usually the case in situations like this when there is a fire while a store is actually open for business. So after Orr was finished giving his assessment, the firefighter at that scene made his way back out to his vehicle and that's when he heard on the radio about the two other fires that had erupted just a few miles away. They were desperate for help, so he took his fire engine and rushed over to the Ole's home center. When he finally got there, he noticed that John Orr had already arrived before him. The captain at the scene of the Ole's fire saw John Orr, and he was kind of annoyed because he clearly didn't come prepared to help fight this fire. He wasn't suited up, and he was just kind of standing there with a camera in his hand. 
He was confused anyway. What was Orr doing there to begin with? Orr said that he just happened to be passing by when he noticed the fire and he asked if he could take some pics. The captain was exasperated, but what could he do? Orr didn't have his gear, so he was like, whatever, do what you need to do. Honestly, I'd be kind of mad if one of our most experienced firefighters showed up at a possibly fatal fire to do nothing but take pics. So the captain turned his attention back to the fire. Jim Obdum was being attended to by paramedics who were getting ready to transport him to the hospital. Billy Deal, he remained outside Oli's the entire night. And the whole day after, for nearly 24 hours, Billy stood there waiting and hoping for his wife and grandson to somehow, someway be okay. And with the fire still raging, flames now lapping out of the top of the building, Orr stood there documenting the whole thing with his camera. A short while later, Ole's employee, Carolyn Kraus, her husband's sister, Karen, arrived at the scene. She caught wind of the fire because she was working for the Glendale Police Department. And when she got there, she noticed Orr's Glendale Fire Department vehicle. She knew that her sister-in-law was working, so she looked around in the parking lot and over where people were being treated for injuries, but she did not see Carolyn. So she spoke to Orr, and she told him that her sister was missing. He assured her that they would look out for her, but the fire was still too intense for anybody to go inside. It didn't take long for Karen to realize that if Carolyn was inside, she was probably not alive. So she contacted her brother, and eventually he showed up. And like Billy, they stood there outside of the Oles and just waited. Carolyn's mother, Patricia, she was actually babysitting her grandkids for the evening while Carolyn was at work. At the time, they were just two and three years old. Just before the fire had started, she had stopped in to Oles to get her daughter's house keys so she could take the kids home so they could be put to bed. Shortly after she got there, Carolyn's house phone began ringing. It was a call from Karen, then a call from her son, Carolyn's brother, and then a call from Carolyn's husband's dad, all of them telling Patricia about the fire and that they couldn't find her daughter. Patricia rushed back to Oli's and joined in the wait. Now, the South Pasadena fire chief, Jean Murray, was actually in the middle of a professional development class in the city of Los Angeles when he was informed of the fires going on in his city. He left the class and headed back to the area. When he got there, he was stunned to find out that there had been three different fires in three different businesses, one right after the other. Murray saw John Orr with his camera, but since he was an arson investigator and the fire was not under control yet, and there really wasn't anything else that he could do, he asked Orr to head over to the Vaughn's location and take a look at that fire since it was already extinguished. It would end up taking 125 firefighters in five hours to get the Oles Home Center fire under control. Not put out, just under control. The phone at Jimmy Centina's house rang also that night. It was a friend of theirs calling. One of Jimmy's siblings picked up. The caller asked if Jimmy was there. 
he wasn't. The friend told him that there was a fire at his work. His brother rushed out of the home. He didn't even tell his mom where who was going or what was going on when she tried to ask. He just left and rushed over there. When he was finally able to get around all of the blocked off streets, he began shouting for his brother, but Jimmy was nowhere around. So he must have been still inside. His brother tried going to the various doors. One was locked, sealed shut. One was spewing flames. There was just no way. And he too joined the small group of waiting families. And he stayed there until late into the night, past midnight. He finally gave up and went home. Matthew's parents, Matt and Kim, they were home that evening along with their five-year-old while their toddler went shopping with grandma and grandpa. Kim had been on the phone with a friend when the operator broke into the line with an emergency call. There are some of us who remember that. If you were calling somebody and getting a busy signal because someone was on the phone, you could call the operator and she or he could interrupt the call and put the emergency caller on the line. It was her father-in-law. He was at Oli's, there was a fire, and he didn't know where Ada or Matthew were at. As they drove, Matt and Kim tried to convince themselves that Billy was just a little bit discombobulated. They'd sort it out when they get there. When they did arrive, Billy was already fairly certain that his wife and grandson were dead somewhere inside the still-burning building. But his son was like, maybe they got out, and maybe they've already been transported to a nearby hospital. Just don't jump to any conclusions yet. So Matt and Kim joined in with the other waiting family members. Sergeant Jack Palmer with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department was the arson and explosives investigator, and he was sent over to the scene of the Ole's Home Center fire. In the morning, the task of getting through all the debris, or what was left of Ole's, was underway. They needed to find the four missing people, Ada, Matthew, Carolyn, and Jimmy. This fire was thought to have raged so completely out of control because of there being so many combustible items inside the hardware store, particularly anything that they had that was made out of polyurethane plastics, which they had plenty of. After Sergeant Palmer had a chance to look around for a while, he was coming to the conclusion that because everything had been so heavily damaged and so many things had fueled the fire, he wasn't confident if he was going to be able to rule it an arson. So many things inside there had worked as accelerants. Jim told the investigator where he saw the smoke rising from. There were two other employees who actually saw the rack where the fire started. But for some reason, they weren't spoken to about what they had observed, at least not that day. Now, Sergeant Palmer did know that there were two other fires close to the time that the Ole's fire had started. But because those two happened in grocery stores and they happened in the potato chip aisle, he decided that the Ole's home center fire was a separate incident. And with that, the investigation went off the rails. You have everybody saying this is not a coincidence. Things like this just don't happen. Three fires this close together all around the same time in businesses that were still open with customers inside. No, 
It's not a coincidence. And this Sergeant Palmer doesn't think that they are connected. But because the Ole's home center fire was different in that it wasn't a grocery store, he immediately came to the conclusion that it didn't have anything to do with the other two grocery store fires. Another investigator named Jim Allen also arrived at Ole's early the next morning. And he right away felt like the hour or so that Sergeant Palmer spent investigating wasn't nearly enough time. In fact, he spent six more hours examining the scene than Palmer had. Allen was accompanied by Captain John Orr. They had worked together for a long time and they were pretty good friends. And Allen told Orr that he wasn't too keen on Sergeant Palmer's conclusions. His biggest concern was how quickly and violently the Olay's home center fire had spread through the building. Though he did know that the hardware store was full of combustibles. But as he and Orr discussed the fire, Orr actually did something interesting and kind of suspicious. He did not tell Jim Allen that there had been two other fires, one just before Ole's and one right after. And he didn't tell Allen that he had been to both of those scenes, nor did he disclose the fact that he was the lead investigator on one of them. It would have probably been a pretty important thing for Allen to know that the Ole's home center fire was sandwiched between two others. Eventually, they were asked to clear out because the sheriff's department needed to get in there and retrieve the bodies of the victims. So Jim Allen was never really able to figure out where the polyurethane materials were located inside Ole's. And the sheriff's department informed him that they would be taking charge of the investigation and that they would be conducting all of the witness interviews. So it looked like people were getting a little territorial here. And in doing so, the sheriff's department were actually pushing aside very experienced arson investigators who knew what they were doing. Ultimately, the two investigators, they were not really reaching a consensus when it came to what they thought the origin of the fire may have been. Sergeant Palmer said he wasn't really able to rule out the fire having been caused by an electrical issue. Jim Allen was like, we haven't even figured out where the fire actually started. They needed to find the point of origin and then go from there. Allen decided for the time being that he was going to list the cause of the fire as being undetermined. But Sergeant Palmer, he believed that the fire started in the attic. That this was an electrical issue and this led to the ceiling to collapse. Allen did not agree with this. But for now, he was just going to have to keep his mouth shut. So they stood there quietly as they watched the remains of four people being removed from where Ole's once stood. In Joseph Wamba's book, Fire Lover, he wrote about the hierarchy when it comes to this particular line of work. Obviously, there are overlapping departments and there is going to be some stepping on toes. Also keep in mind, this is back in 1984, so I'm sure things have changed in the decades since then, perhaps. Wamba wrote, In order to understand the compliance of so many trained arson specialists at the fire scene, one must understand the hierarchy and the class structure that divides the profession. First, there are the arson investigators who have been drawn from the firefighting ranks. 
Although they have peace officer status, carry firearms, and effect the arrests of fire-setting criminals, they are and always will be, to the other class, just gun-toting firemen who, if they depart from arson investigation, will go back to the firehouse and scrub fire hoses and polish chrome. The other arson investigators, those who come from the ranks of the police service, are first and foremost cops. They are law enforcement officers assigned to arson investigation and will be law enforcement officers after leaving the arson ranks. Their canine symbol is the German Shepherd police dog, a true descendant of the wolf, not some white and black bag of spots that chases a fire truck. Also, Sergeant Palmer was not a cop from a town like South Pasadena or any of the other little cities that make up the foothill area of the San Gabriel Valley. He was with an agency that numbered in the thousands, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which along with the LAPD was one of the major police entities in California. Fire investigator Jim Allen knew who wins in a pissing contest between cops and firemen. So when Sergeant Palmer essentially called it an accidental fire, there was not much argument. In fact, people never did speak publicly of their differing opinions, not for a long time. Now again, dreamers, I want to point out that the sentiment might be a little bit dated. I don't know if it's still a them versus us dynamic in situations like this. I don't really hear too much about it because their jobs don't often overlap. But in cases like this, it's inevitable. And I just want to be clear that this is how the book is setting the stage for how this case was being handled or mishandled. And I mean, insulting Dalmatians, that's uncalled for, really, I'm so sure. But John Orr, he wasn't happy with Sergeant Palmer's assessment of the fire that this was an accident. So he contacted another colleague of his, a gentleman by the name of Dennis Foote. And he was an investigator with the Los Angeles County Fire Department. Okay, so how many different investigative agencies is that so far? We have John Orr, captain of the Glendale Fire Department, Sergeant Jack Palmer with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, California State Fire Marshal Investigator Jim Allen, and now the Los Angeles Fire Department Arson Investigator Dennis Foote. So that's four different investigators from four different agencies here. But you know, Orr had another reason why he wanted to talk to Dennis Foote. He had been investigating a series of fires in and around Los Angeles for several years by then. And Orr knew that there were some with similar MOs, bags of chips being set on fire and others where polyurethane materials were being set on fire. And in those instances, they also happened while businesses were open and always in the late afternoon or in the evenings. And in one of the cases, there had been an incendiary device that had failed to burn. They were able to collect it as evidence. And when you consider the amount of destruction that that thing would cause, it was ridiculously simple. It was a cigarette that had three matches attached to it by a rubber band. And this whole thing would be wrapped in a yellow piece of lined paper, like a legal pad. The device would be placed near some flammable things like polyurethane foam or bags of chips. The cigarette would be lit, and it was a slow burn. Eventually, it would reach the matches. Those would ignite and then burn the yellow-lined paper, 
and then cause whatever the incendiary device was next to to catch on fire and everything would just start burning and then all the evidence the cigarette the matches the paper all of that would burn up too along with giving the arsonist a pretty good head start to get out of the area while the cigarette slowly burned it would take maybe like 10 minutes and they'd be long gone before the fire would ever start and it just so happened at one of the arsons the device did not fully burn because the sprinkler system had extinguished the fire and investigators were able to recover it and learned how their fire starter operated. So when Dennis Foote arrived at Ole's home center, John Orr met him there to fill him in on what had been going on. He told him that there were a total of three fires in the area and that he suspected that all three of them had used a delayed incendiary device. They both looked around at what was left of the building, but so much of it had been destroyed. There didn't seem to be much left that Foot could add to the investigation. But he did bring something for Orr, and it was his file on the potato chip fires. And since Orr was now involved in looking into similar fires, he could have it to reference and compare to see if there was any connection. Just a couple days later, there was a fire at another home improvement store called Builders Emporium. This time, it was in the city of North Hollywood. And like some of the fires that Foote had investigated previously, this one was also started around some polyurethane materials. After visiting that scene, he decided to go back to Ole's to see if he could figure out if the fire had been set near any polyurethane. But by the time he got there, the lot had been cleaned up and cleared out. I mentioned earlier that John Orr and the sister-in-law of Carolyn Krause, who died in the fire, Karen Krause, she and John both worked for the city of Glendale. She was a community service officer and he was a fire captain. I don't know exactly how well they knew each other before, but now that Karen's sister-in-law had perished in the Ole's Home Center fire, she had reason to be interacting with John Orr. He told her that he was kind of upset that the Ole's fire was determined to have been an accident, citing the fact that there were other home improvement stores where fires were started in highly flammable materials, and they had been able to recover a delayed incendiary device because of the store sprinkler system, so he felt like there must be a connection to Ole's. He told Karen that the arson investigator should have been involved in the autopsies of those who died in that fire. They could have had their lungs and airways tested for the kinds of chemicals and substances that would have been inhaled had polyurethane materials been burned, that they missed that opportunity because the medical examiner would not have known what to look for. A fire investigator would have and should have been standing by. Two months after the fatal fire that took four lives at the Ole's Home Center in South Pasadena, the arsonist targeted another Ole's location, this time in the city of Pasadena. But the fire never got going. The same incendiary device was found stuffed into some polyurethane materials. There was a little bit of burnt material, but the fire went out and the incendiary device was still intact. Investigators were sure now that they were dealing with a serial arsonist. Because the information about the delayed incendiary device was something that was not released to the media, so they knew it had to be the same person because nobody knew about it except for investigators and, of course, the arsonist. 
Later on, not right away, but much later on, investigators would come to believe that the arsonist was put off by the fact that the South Pasadena Oles fire was ruled accidental and that it was possible that the arsonist wanted his handiwork acknowledged for what it really was, a fire that completely destroyed an entire building and took the lives of four people. So he went and set an identical fire at another Oles location because he was so offended that investigators called the first fire an accident and just filed it away. So we're going to switch gears here and talk a little more about John Orr. He would always say that there were two things that happened when he was young that kind of gave him a direction that he knew he wanted to go in life. One was there were three kids that he went to school with who set a sofa on fire in one of their homes and they almost lost their lives. The sofa ended up burning down the entire house. John Orr had gone over to the scene. He stood there and watched as the fire consumed the home. And then just a few short weeks later, Orr saw another fire. This one had started in a garbage bin or a dumpster. Then the fire ignited a nearby utility pole. The friend that Orr was with had got to a phone to call for help, and they stood by and waited and watched as the first engine arrived. But when that engine did come to a stop near the blaze, nothing happened. And Orr stood there wondering why none of the firefighters were doing anything or getting their equipment out to put the fire out. Years later, he realized that it was part of their protocol But it really bothered Orr for years that those firefighters didn't immediately knock down the fire. Once the fire was extinguished and the area was cleared up, Orr actually went back to the alley to try and figure out how the fire started. Better yet, he wanted to try and figure out who started it. Early on, it was clear that John Orr had the type of personality where he was prone to impulsive behaviors. He would do things without really thinking them through first. John Orr didn't really have the most idyllic life growing up. It wasn't awful, but I got the sense it wasn't really what Orr wanted for himself. Any time in his life, when he was asked what his childhood was like, he likened it to being just like Ozzy and Harriet. Okay, so I've never watched an episode of Ozzy and Harriet, but I do get the reference. But just in case... According to Encyclopedia.com, this was a TV show that aired from 1952 to 1966. John Orr was born in 1949, so it was in its original run from the time that he was three until he was 17. So that's a really long time. This TV show featured a real-life family. They were Ozzy and Harriet Nelson and their two sons, David and Ricky Nelson. And hey, my Gen X friends out there, you remember in the 1990s, the band Nelson, they had their debut album. They were the twins, Gunner and Matthew. And they had that song, Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection. And they had that perfectly long, straight blonde hair. I'm fairly certain they were a one hit wonder, though. Yeah, their dad was Ricky Nelson here. So fun fact, their family holds the Guinness Book of World Records for having a number one song for three generations in a row. 
I know that was way off topic. And some of us are probably going to run over to YouTube and watch the music video again for the first time in 30 years. Anyway, the show Ozzy and Harriet had some gentle humor, as they called it. Ozzy didn't even really seem to have a job, but they managed to live in a really nice suburban neighborhood where everybody was white, all the kids behaved, the dads were ever-present, and doled out sage advice to their children. Moms were in the kitchen with aprons, baking goodies. It was very wholesome and very bland. So yeah, whenever Orr was asked, what was your family like? He said it was like Ozzy and Harriet, except Orr had two other brothers, two older brothers, so there was three of them. Orr's father had owned a series of businesses, but eventually they all just went belly up. They usually were able to scrape by, but there was a dramatic change in the family when Orr's mother walked out. There was no warning. She didn't tell her husband. She didn't tell anyone. She said she would call, but other than that, she was gone. Both of Orr's brothers had moved out of the family home. One was in the military, and the other one had struck out on his own. So Orr stayed living in the home with just his dad. His mom did keep in touch, but she rarely visited, and she never reconciled with Orr's father. By the time Orr was a senior in high school, he began entertaining options as to what he was going to do after high school. The Vietnam War was in full swing, so he could either enlist in the military or he could go to college. Or if he wanted to avoid Vietnam altogether, he could move to Canada. Apparently, that was a thing. He still had aspirations of becoming a firefighter. So when the captain of the Los Angeles Fire Department visited his high school on career day, Orr made it a point to speak to him. The captain told him, if he enlisted and specialized in fire protection, when he was discharged, he would be as good as in. So that's what he did. After Orr turned 18, he enlisted in the Air Force. At first, he was assigned to be trained as a mechanic. Eventually, he was able to transfer to fire protection training. A year later, Orr and his girlfriend at the time, Jody, they got married. He was subsequently transferred to Spain. But after two years... Or was disappointed that he had only attended to two fires caused by fighter jet crashes. He definitely wanted to see more action than that. By 1970, Orr was stateside again, stationed in Great Falls, Montana. And after another year, he was still only called upon to deal with one fire. And it was small, and he wasn't even on duty at the time, he just happened to be nearby. Being a firefighter in the military was hardly what Orr imagined it would be like. When he was finally discharged in 1971, he kind of left the military with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He learned a lot about himself, but the one thing he had a very difficult time with was having to be beholden to any person in a position of authority over him. He began developing a very egotistical attitude. Later on, Orr would explain this as being his way of making up for all the deep-seated self-esteem issues that he had. But the one thing he knew that he wanted 
for sure was to work for the fire department. So when he got out of the military, he applied at numerous agencies around Southern California, hoping that one of them would pick up on his application. In the meantime, he got a job working for Sparklets Water, delivering five-gallon jugs of drinking water. His wife gave birth to a daughter, Carrie, in June of 1971, but Orr wasn't quite ready to grow up just yet. After all, he was only 22 years old when his daughter was born. So while he wasn't working, he would often go out drinking with friends, always until closing time. Even Orr himself would describe himself as being a prick. But from the way he seemed to dance around it, I think it was kind of his way of saying he was having numerous affairs. He said it was his inability to have insight, which is crap. I just don't think this guy knew how to take any sort of responsibility for any of his behaviors. And it started very early on in his adult life. His own lifestyle was a far cry from the Ozzy and Harriet description that he gave to his own family and upbringing. So finally, Orr received a call from one of the agencies that he had applied to, the LAPD. For him, this would have been the premier law enforcement agency in the country to work for, and he was really excited for the opportunity. So he started to get through the battery of tests that they administer. There's written tests and physical agility and an oral interview and then a health screening. And Orr passed everything, but there was a component of the health exam that caused some problems for Orr. The psychological tests, known as the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the most widely used and researched clinical assessment tool used by mental health professionals to help diagnose mental health disorders. It was 550 questions. He also took the Rorschach test, which is a psychological test in which perceptions of ink blots are recorded and analyzed in order to examine a person's personality characteristics and emotional functioning. Or gave fairly innocent answers as to what he was seeing with the ink blots. And I looked at some of them online. I don't know what sorts of images they really use, but the ones that I was looking at mostly looked like butterflies and female reproductive organs if I'm being honest it was weird so or was thinking that the ink blots were made to purposely look like something sexual so he avoided saying that they did and then he thought maybe everyone thought he was lying after a few weeks or received a letter in the mail from the LAPD informing him that he was found to have been unsuitable for hire he was mortified and he was angry. The rejection letter did include steps that Orr could take in order to appeal the decision, which was to get a second opinion, which he did. Orr hired a psychologist he found in the phone book and that psychologist gave him a written statement that he found Orr to be suitable for duty. He visited the LAPD psychologist who had rejected him and while he explained that he really couldn't get into the specifics about his rejection because people will try to use that information to pass the test, he did say that Orr's personality was too passive and that it would not be a good fit for the LAPD. Orr thought back to the inkblot tests. He gave answers that they looked like ballet dancers and butterflies and sleepy lagoons. 
maybe that's what made them think that he was quote unquote passive. He figured that he should have been giving answers like spiders and reptiles and bolts of lightning instead. At some point, the doctor told Orr that he was going to step into the lobby and grab a cup of coffee, but when he did so, the doctor inadvertently left Orr's file right there on his desk. So when he did leave the room, Orr snuck a quick peek, and he was able to see the real reason why he was rejected. So get this. The LAPD had done some checking into Orr's background, and one of the places that they called was Sparklet's Water. Orr found that a co-worker of his told the investigator that Orr was not a hard worker, he was apathetic, and when Orr was passed over for a promotion in favor of him, Orr made no secret of how much he was insulted and bitter about it. And worst of all, this co-worker did not think that Orr could cut it as a police officer. John Orr had a hard time accepting that he was rejected because of the statements of one person. Towards the bottom of the evaluation, the doctor wrote that Orr was immature and needed to take stock of his life before he attempts to apply for the job with the LAPD ever again. The comments made by Orr's co-worker from Sparklets caused him to no longer want to work for the company. A few weeks after his LAPD rejection, he quit. He began a manager training program at Jack in the Box. He didn't stay long opting to take a job at KFC instead, Kentucky Fried Chicken. By this time, it was getting close to the holidays, and even though Orr was doing all right with KFC, he abruptly quit that job too, and his wife was not too happy about it. Orr was convinced that he would have been an excellent police officer, but if they weren't willing to accept him, he decided that he would turn his attention back towards becoming a firefighter. He applied with the Los Angeles Fire Department, and they did, in fact, hire him. But he did need to pass their academy. Unfortunately for Orr, he assumed that his experience in the military was going to be enough for him to make the cut, but he was going to have to successfully make it through the rigors of the academy, and he wasn't really ready for it physically. It had been three years since he got out of the military. He admittedly spent a lot of time drinking and womanizing. That's not going to keep him in top physical condition. So once he got to the academy, John quickly realized just how out of shape he actually was. Orr was finally asked to come and speak to the captain at the fire department academy. He was told, look, your scores on your written exams were too low. And he did not successfully complete the rope and ladder tests twice. Orr tried to explain why he was coming up short, but the captain said, you have the chance right now to discreetly resign, or you can wait until the next battery of tests, and if you fail again, you'll be fired. John Orr definitely had this overblown perception of himself and his abilities. He boasted about being a firefighter in the Air Force for four years. He knew what he was doing. How could anyone say that he wasn't good enough? Well, apparently, the Los Angeles Fire Department could say it. Maybe Orr was acceptable enough for the Air Force, 
but the Los Angeles Fire Department standards were higher and Orr just wasn't there. He was ultimately fired from the academy. As he drove home that day, he sobbed. Just a grown man, just in tears, driving his car. His entire body went numb. He could not believe that he had been rejected again. And all of this was just before the holidays. Not only was this taking its toll on John Orr, it was also taking its toll on his marriage. The fact of the matter is, John Orr put little to no effort into preparing for the rigors of the Fire Department Academy. Other young women and men took it very seriously. They practiced their drills, they studied together, they dedicated themselves to making it through the academy successfully. But Orr? Not so much. He went in with the attitude that his time in the military would speak for him. And that ended up backfiring and he was kicked out of the academy. So... After the new year, it was now 1974, Orr went ahead and applied for a job with the Glendale Fire Department. Why Glendale? Well, at the time, the firefighters in Glendale were the lowest paid of all the fire departments in Los Angeles County. There were 55 fire stations back in 1974, and there are still 55 fire stations today in the county. Orr just decided that if he was going to be a firefighter, he was going to have to start at the bottom. So Orr did well on the written exam, but he was worried that he was going to be asked about being rejected from the LAPD because he couldn't pass the psychological tests and flunking out of the LAFD Academy for being ill-prepared and out of shape. What he ended up saying about the Academy was that their program was very stringent, and at the time he was struggling with issues at home with his wife and his two young kids, which was having a negative impact on his performance. And John Orr got lucky because the hiring board kind of sympathized with him. They did like the fact that he had been trained in fire protection in the military. They even went so far as to provide him with a marriage counselor. And just like that, John Orr was hired into the Glendale Fire Department. He completed his training on March 1st, 1974. At that point, Orr finally became an official firefighter. By February of 1975, Orr made it through his probationary period successfully and became a full-time, full-fledged member of the Glendale Fire Department. By the way, the LAPD file on John Orr, the one that was left on the desk that he snuck a peek at, while it was never really known whether or not he actually saw the psychologist's findings when it came to Orr's mental stability, if Orr actually saw it, he has never mentioned it. But according to Fire Lover, the book, the doctor's notes read as follows. Non-acceptable applicant. Reason for rejection based on his past history and test results. Currently having marital problems with separation. Recently walked off a job, gave no notice. Supervisors gave him poor evaluations, described him as a goof-off, know-it-all, irresponsible, and immature. The testing re-emphasizes this. Rorschach shows him as passive, indecisive with problems with women and sex. The MMPI confirmed this and showed a schizoid person who was withdrawn from people and may have sexual confusion in his orientation. Very non-objective diagnosis, personality trait disturbance, 
emotionally unstable personality. So yeah, this is just who became a firefighter in Glendale. And dreamers, I really didn't necessarily do all this on purpose because I didn't exactly know all of these details, but this is kind of sort of sounding a little like former doctor turned serial killer Anthony Garcia, doesn't it? It's tons of disappointment, tons of failure while trying to launch into his career. But anyway, it's just a coincidence that these two back-to-back stories seem to have these parallel themes going on with uh, the two main characters. So anyway, even though Orr had finally gotten his career off the ground, things were still kind of meh at home. And to me, he kind of did some strange things. And one was that he got a part-time job working at 7-Eleven. He kind of struck me as the type of person didn't really want to be around his wife and kids. And by this time, I mentioned a moment ago, he had two daughters by then. He bought himself a truck and got some gear and began taking up camping and hunting. Or also had a female co-worker at 7-Eleven who was also in a miserable marriage. So they decided to both walk out on their marriages and families and move into an apartment in Glendale together. Or insisted that they were only platonic roommates. But later on, that really lasted less than a half hour once they actually moved in together. Just like Orr's mom had done all those years ago to him that devastated the family, walking out on his father and himself and his siblings and never coming back, Orr did the same exact thing to his wife and daughters. Orr would end up marrying this woman, but in a short period of time, they too would end up divorced. John Orr also began going to college. He took classes that would help further his career within the fire department, along with some political science classes. Orr did have a long-standing dislike of law enforcement as a whole. He never thought that the police department and the fire department ever really got along. He always felt like the police regularly bullied and disrespected firefighters. So he took the classes to expand his knowledge and to utilize his skills as a writer. So he says he has skills because firefighters don't write as many reports as cops do. And Orr also had this so-called gift of being able to tell when somebody was trying to steal something from 7-Eleven. If he saw some kid taking something, he'd go over there and he'd grab the kid and demand that they empty out their pockets. And he was usually right. And his 7-Eleven boss liked him for that reason. So Orr began acting like some sort of shoplifting vigilante because if he saw shoplifting anywhere, he would go after the person, tackle them, and detain them until police arrived. One time at a shopping mall, he caught a shoplifter. Mall security came over and took over the situation. Orr asked if there was a chance that he could work there as a security guard, but he was told that they only hire off-duty cops, not off-duty firefighters. So there was another rejection. He didn't like what he was told because he was really getting off on catching these shoplifters. He ended up catching a second shoplifter on that same visit to the mall. He tried asking again about a job working as security and again he was told off-duty cops only. But then Orr was asked if it was possible that he could work at the mall during the day because now that he mentions it, they don't have enough guards in the mornings and afternoons. Orr jumped at the chance and took the job right away. He quit 7-Eleven and became a security guard at Sears in the mall. 
Within just a couple of months working at Sears, Orr managed to have 30 shoplifters arrested, another 20 he caught, but he let off the hook. He caught one Sears employee stealing and two attempted car thefts in the parking lot. And if he had to, he would pursue the thieves on foot, which had the potential to become a pretty dangerous situation. So Orr was on a roll there as a mall cop. He told everybody that he had this sixth sense for this stuff. And when I said Orr got off on it, he really did. He loved catching people. He loved acting like a cop. And the reason why he was so good at it was because he looked like such an average, unassuming guy. He wasn't that tall. He had a little bit of a beer belly going on. He wasn't all that attractive, but he was well-spoken. And he was said to have had a pretty nice tone to his voice. But he was able to blend in and watch the shoplifters. He said he would do it for no pay, that he loved it that much. Because Orr was so good at catching criminals, a staff member of the Glendale Police Department was able to obtain a concealed carry permit for him. And those were not easy to get. In fact, Orr's was only the sixth concealed carry permit issued in that jurisdiction. So now John Orr was armed, just like a cop. Orr began socializing with the local police officers, too. He inserted himself into all their conversations as if he were one of them. If you didn't know any better, you'd think that he was a cop himself. He even had the 1980s police-issued mustache. The regulation stash. It came with the badge and the gun. It was a thing, right? Even into the 90s. Even today, Orr is alive, and he's old and gray, and so is his facial hair. Sometimes it might look like he has a beard, but he still always had the mustache going on. But anyway, he was basically a firefighter, acting like a cop. Eventually, both departments started calling him a wannabe. The reality was, being just a firefighter was kind of boring to Orr. He really wanted to play cops and robbers. So what he ended up doing was requesting to be placed on hillside patrol with the fire department. And what he would do is he would drive around in this big lime green colored truck that has this big water tank and a pump on it so he can go around inspecting stuff, dry brush, things like that. It's like preventative work. And if he came across a small fire, he'd be able to suppress it with this water tank. But In his mind, he kind of twisted this around as being a form of a cop patrolling his beat. He got to work alone. He had his gun. He was ready for anything that came his way. John Orr, through a series of chance encounters and circumstances, was kind of becoming a little bit of a hero. But it was by way of his own making In the city of Glendale, sometime in the late 70s, there were a series of three deliberately set fires that were at local department stores. They were all set near some luggage and cardboard box items. They all occurred while the store was open with customers inside. The time was close to closing. It's in the evening. And when the third fire happened, Orr was just one street over working security at Sears. And he was off and heading home just while the fire was burning 
He stopped and he helped the firefighters battle the blaze for the next couple hours until they got it knocked down. That particular series of arson fires were never solved, and both police and fire departments were heavily criticized for their failure to solve those crimes. After Orr and his second wife divorced, he moved into a small house just a couple of blocks away from his fire station and his favorite watering hole. Orr also began writing, which was one of his aspirations. One of the things that he worked on was updating the employee manuals at the fire station, which his co-workers really didn't care for. They had all been there for quite some time, and they were all set in their ways, and they just didn't really see it as a necessary thing to start messing with something that they did not think was broken. Or just figured that they weren't used to him because he was so eccentric, which was Orr's own favorite adjective for himself. His co-workers said neurotic was more like it. But Orr didn't care what anybody thought of him. So Orr's job started to include patrolling an even more vast of an area in Glendale, going to people's houses that had lots of dried brush and overgrown bushes and whatnot, and issuing citations for them to remove all of that stuff because it's a fire hazard. There was also an ongoing problem with kids at local schools doing pranks, pulling fire alarms and setting them off. So Orr wanted to catch those little punks too. He started catching so many school kids that it only caused his colleagues at the fire station to mock him even more than they already were. He also started going after kids that liked to play with matches. So that's what John Orr was all about, busting shoplifters and kids. Orr's jobs had given him the feeling of being like a cop and acting like a cop. But in the vast spectrum of criminal activity, shoplifters and school children were becoming kind of lame. Considering this was going into 1980s Los Angeles when serious street crime and murders were hitting all-time highs, John's crime fighting was really small time. He decided it was time to go after arsonists, ones that weren't just playing with matches, the ones who were setting fires meant to cause maximum destruction. The Glendale Fire Department was getting ready to add an official arson investigator. It was the closest thing a member of the fire department could get to to being just like a police officer. And Orr really wanted the job badly. And it probably wasn't going to be all that difficult. Nobody else in the department wanted to touch that job with a 10-foot pole. Three-meter pole, if you're one of those. Okay, so Orr had a pretty serious incident that happened to him that was described in the book Fire Lover. Normally, or when working his security job at Sears, he would carry a 38 caliber gun. But on one particular day, he was carrying a bigger 45 caliber gun. He was called out to the automotive repair shop that was adjacent to the main department store. There was a guy who was trying to pick up a car from their shop, but he wasn't the owner. That guy decided to go ahead and take the car anyway. And he got in and he began to hotwire it, which was just about impossible to do nowadays with modern vehicles. So Orr showed up. He sees a guy messing with the ignition. 
And just as he got the engine started or pulled out his gun and like some kind of cliche movie line, he shouts, give it up, asshole. (sighs) Cheesy, cheesy, cheesy. The guy (laughs) puts the car in reverse and accelerated very quickly and Orr was actually clipped by the bumper of the car, which caused him to fall and roll away a little bit. I don't know why this sounds so funny to me. I just picture this goober trying to be like a tough guy. So anyway, the car thief crashes into another parked car. So Orr was able to get to his feet and he made his way over to the car thief And here's the thing. John Orr had no idea what to do next. He wanted to play the game, but when things got serious, he didn't know the rules. He's holding a gun. He shouts another cheesy movie line, move an inch and I'll drop the hammer, you son of a bitch. And then he actually cocked his weapon. But Orr wasn't sure if this was an event that justified shooting the guy. And I mean, nowadays we can kind of appreciate you know, his inhibition to just up and shoot somebody, considering all the things that have happened in recent years. But still, he wasn't trained. He didn't know what to do. Fortunately, Orr didn't have to contemplate the situation for too long because there was a cop nearby who was having lunch who overheard Orr's yelling. So he apparently got up from his lunch and casually strolled over bringing his food and his drink with him and for some reason the car thief was so much more intimidated by the cop with his coffee and his food in his hand than he was by or brandishing a 45 because the guy immediately surrendered as soon as he saw the cop his hands up he gave up he stopped resisting and it bothered or a lot as he headed to the police station to give a statement It bothered him that perhaps that car thief just took one look at Orr and couldn't be bothered with him because he was short and pudgy, even though he was holding a loaded weapon pointed right at him. But yet, he caved in immediately in the face of a real police officer who was holding his coffee. Orr thought, maybe he is just a wannabe, just like everyone has been saying all along. The next notable incident that Orr was involved in that also blurred the lines between what his job duties were and what they weren't. And this time, there was some reporting about it in the local media. So Orr was doing his usual fire patrol rounds. He drove around in a really clunky, heavily equipped, lime green colored Glendale Fire Department heavy duty pickup truck. All of this is to say is that he isn't in a very slick, fast vehicle that exudes authority or demands respect. So as he's going along, he noticed a couple of young Hispanic men. I'm sure he racially profiled them as he spotted them. They were wearing clothing like buttoned up Pendleton's, maybe some dickies or baggy khaki pants with some serious creases in the front and some lokes on and you get the picture right so or sees these guys and he automatically thinks that they look like they're up to no good apparently these guys looked at him kind of funny or whatever and or took exception to it 
So get this. In the book, it referenced Orr's recounting of this incident. And it's so overly dramatic. Okay, so this guy, this is what he writes. This is Orr's writing. Behind my sunglasses, I locked onto them like the guidance system of a cruise missile. My sixth sense was functioning. Heart racing. My grip tightened on the steering wheel. If I was a German shepherd, I'd be growling and pulling my chain. <sighs> so stupid. So Orr, <laughs> so Orr went around the block and then he parked at a place where he would be able to use his binoculars to watch these two guys. Now, he didn't want to radio for the police right away because if these guys weren't doing anything illegal, then he was going to look pretty stupid. More stupid than he already did look. Instead, he radioed the dispatcher at the fire station and he asked them to radio the Glendale Police Department and asked them if they had any units near his location. And the dispatcher was like, do you want a unit to respond? And Orr was like, not yet. And the dispatcher checked up on any locations of patrol cars, but there really weren't any that close by. Eventually, Orr decided to start up his clunky vehicle once again, and he began driving down the street. And that's when he saw one of the men walking in the direction of a nearby alleyway. So Orr turned down an adjacent alley, and he parked his truck and he got out. He saw the two Hispanic men near a blue car, and they had the trunk open. And once he saw that, Orr decided to get back into his truck. He drove into the alley where they were, but they were driving in the alley too, headed directly towards him, the opposite direction. And as they passed, Orr said that he was able to look down into their car, and he saw a TV, a blender, and some grocery bags filled with stuff like a camera and a clock, and he also saw a large kitchen knife on the passenger's lap. So, John Orr's adrenaline starts pumping. These guys must have burglarized a house, and he was going to go get them. Orr radioed dispatch again, and the dispatcher was like, go ahead, John. At that point, Orr started to hear someone in the background start laughing out loud, and said, ah, shit, what is it now? Followed by more laughter. At that point, Orr pressed down on the accelerator, causing his truck engine to get really loud, and he made a very sharp turn, screeching his tires as he said into the radio, burglary, blue Toyota sedan, no license plate, two male Latinos, early 20s. But once those guys realized Orr was giving chase, they floored it and made a quick U-turn, to try and outrun the old truck. And as the Toyota raced by Orr, he had quickly moved out of the way or else they would have crashed. But this caused him to run up onto a curb, sending all of his tools and junk in the bed of his truck flying around, making all kinds of loud metal-on-metal metal crashing sounds. And these two guys, trying to flee, start laughing their asses off at this moron, trying to chase them in a work truck. And as they pass by Orr, one of them flipped him off. Orr felt a sense of embarrassment and defeat because he knew these guys were not concerned in the least that they were being chased by a firefighter. To them, it was laughable, and they were laughing, that's for sure. Orr felt like a fool, but he decided to pump himself up, and he told himself, 
These guys have never come across a firefighter quite like him. And he'll show them. So he continued to chase. He did have a red emergency light on the roof of his truck. So he turned that on and kept going. Bystanders were like, what's going on? What is this fire department truck doing? As he was going along, he continued updating dispatch with his location, screaming the names of streets into the mic. The fire department dispatcher was like, Are you involved in a pursuit, John? In other words, are you actually driving your fire prevention patrol truck chasing some suspected burglars? Seriously, is this like happening right now? But or he was so embarrassed about how this was sounding how stupid that he was going to look. He decided to deny that it was a chase and that he was just following some burglars really, really fast. The dispatcher was like, okay, I'll let the police know that you're not in a pursuit, just a really, really fast follow. Right. The Toyota made a quick turn and came to a sudden stop or thought that maybe that they were going to try to flee on foot. So he began contemplating what he was going to do next, because he knew that these guys had a knife. He decided to retrieve his own weapon, his thirty-eight, but it didn't have any bullets in it. Well, or also had a second gun, a twenty-two that he kept hidden in his truck. He knew that that one was loaded, so he grabbed it. But suddenly, the Toyota began driving away again. They only went another block or so when they came to another full skidding stop near a bus stop, and then both men bailed out, both of them running in different directions, or decided to go after the one who had flipped him off. He grabbed his twenty-two and gave chase. Fortunately for Orr, the burglar was slow and out of shape, so when he tried to jump a wall, his body betrayed him. Orr approached him, pointing his gun at the guy. Finally, a police officer showed up. And he's looking at this whole thing, and he's like, "What the hell is going on?" And he asks, "Or is that your green truck back there?" But or he couldn't say any more than yes because he started feeling so nauseated, and suddenly he vomited right on the suspect. Both the burglar and the cop were completely confused. As it turned out, Or did catch a couple of burglars. His assessment was correct. They had broken into someone's home and stole a bunch of stuff, and I found it kind of funny that among the things that they took were a blender and a clock. But whatever. As for Orr, he was being a little boasty, a little chest thumpy around the fire station. Like, yeah, he caught some guys, but you know, it's no big deal. Don't need to make a big thing out of it. But oh, to the contrary, Orr loved the attention. His fire department colleagues began busting his balls all over again, calling him Deputy Dog. Orr was very aware that if he was a cop, this would have been a legit apprehension. But because he was viewed as nothing more than a wannabe cop, he was a constant target of taunts and mockery. Orr was a joke to everyone. He was praised and given a commendation for his bust. But he was also disciplined for carrying a loaded firearm in his fire department issued vehicle. John Orr was the laughing stock of the whole department, and nobody was really sure how they were going to deal with this guy. 
Like, what do you do with somebody like John Leonard Orr? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and end part one here. This is going to be multiple parts. It's going to be a total of six, and I know this because I've already written them all. I wanted to try to upload them all at the same time, but the story got really, really complicated as I kept going. So in the next part, we're going to get into the 1980s. John Orr is going to continue to try to further his career within the fire department by taking more professional development courses as he tries to have a deeper understanding of arson investigation. While most of his colleagues would rather have nothing to do with it, Orr's interest in arson was steadily growing. So in the next part, it's going to be out shortly, hopefully not too long from now. Don't forget to follow California Dreaming on Facebook, join the discussion group, support on Patreon if you have a dollar or two to spare each month. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and maybe TikTok. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you enjoy this series. It feels a little anticlimactic after the Amy's Bakery episode. And I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do that one, but I'm glad that I did because you guys really seem to like it. And I think I might have found another silly crime story. It's not as dramatic as that, but um, it's an interesting one that I don't think very many people have heard of. But anyway, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.